Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Nandan, we are delighted that you are here today with us. Thank you so much. So let's start uh, relatively from the beginning and take us back to the seven of you sitting together, thinking of starting a company. How did that come about? What happened? What triggered it? How did you get started? Well, uh, the company began under the leadership of Mr. Narayan Murthy. And we all, were all working together in Mumbai and felt that India needed a, a professional company that could be global with high standards of corporate governance. And all of us were technology professionals, so we thought we should be doing our own thing. So really it was Murthy who led the whole thing and brought us all together. And we set it up in 1981, so it's pretty long back. And for a long time we were, we were growing very slowly because this was pre-liberalization in India. When it took two years to get a phone connection and you know, every trip abroad required sanction of dollars from the central bank and so on. So it was only the early 90s when liberalization happened, India became a much more market economy that companies like Infosys and others took off. And so talk to us a little bit about the dynamics of you. It's a slow growth from 81 to 90. Then there's liberalization. Yeah. You suddenly have strong growth. Many companies aren't able to visualize size and scale and ambition. Yeah. Um, what were the discussions the seven of you had? Should we grow? Because even without too much growth, you could have been very successful business people. No, actually, when liberalization and the economic reforms came upon us, hmm. we were faced with a very sort of stark choice. Either we had to grow or we couldn't be essentially in business because the competition was going to go up. Global players were going to come. There was going to be a talent war. So it required you to be also have a certain scale, a certain brand. So we took a very conscious decision in the early 90s to go for broke, you know, go all out. All out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there was a change in our mindsets. It meant thinking big. It meant, meant planning for the future. And uh, we also meant huge investment, which is why we went public in the Indian capital markets in 1993. And we also became the first Indian company to list in North America when we listed on NASDAQ in 99. Then later on, we moved to the NYSE. And um, what were the different phases of scaling up? So I get from 81 to the 90s, slow growth. Yeah. Then you have, OK, let's list, go big. What were some of your most important phases yeah. and challenges in being able to scale? So in the early 90s, we were about uh, 3 to $5 million in revenue. So the first challenge was getting to And how much is it now? It's about 12 billion. So three to five million and now 12 yes. billion. <laughs> Sometime back, yeah. So uh, it's, uh, well, first of course, it was tuned to get 100 million looked daunting. And uh, we realized one thing that you always need to plan ahead and set an audacious goal for the future. But that's what motivates people to work towards that. So as we were approaching 100 million, we said we should be a billion. So that. That looked daunting. <laughs> then we got there, and then, of course, 10 billion and so on. So I think uh, it's all about looking into the future, setting some audacious goals, getting everybody aligned on behind those goals. 
And also, when you set these big goals for the future, it forces you to look at every aspect of your business to figure out what you need to do today to, to get there. So it's a great way to do planning by having a very ambitious target. And what were some of the most difficult things in that growth from, say, 100 million to a billion? Well, I think, you know, we, we had to change from being essentially a bunch of entrepreneurs all doing the same thing to having much more structure, having budgets, having a strategic plan, hiring talented people, creating employee stock option plans, uh, investing in leadership development, investing in HR training. So it's all about how do you, you know, if you're going to go to such a large size, how do you build all this infrastructure to, you know, to meet that scale? So that was the big change. I think the big thing that we did was we took a call in early 90s that India would become a big software destination. So we invested ahead of the curve in building campuses. We built India's first software campus in 1992 and uh, the one in Bangalore, which is now a very large campus. And I think so by sort of betting on the future, we were able to get ahead. So here you were CEO of this very successful firm. Uh, and then you left your role as the CEO. Um, that was to go and set up Aadhaar. That's right. So before we get into the challenges and scale of Aadhaar, give our audience a little bit of sense of what is Aadhaar. Sure. Well, Aadhaar is a, a digital ID system uh, which uh, is designed for 1.2 billion people. And the idea was that uh, millions of Indians don't have documentation. Unlike in the US where every birth is registered and 98% of births have uh, registration certificates, in India, in many states, more than half the births are not registered. So we had lots of people who were there who didn't have any ID. And in an increasingly mobile and migrant world, ID is essential to survival. ID is essential to get a bank account, to get a job, to get a mobile connection, to board a train or a, or a plane. So identity is so in, required that there was a big need felt of doing something about it. It was also to make the uh, government benefits more efficient. Because of the lack of a good ID system, there's a lot of fraud and wastage. So when you're talking about government programs, what are you referring to? You know, the government over the last 15 years has built many welfare state components like uh, education, uh, like uh, pensions, scholarships, uh, low-cost low energy. These are all essentially... Uh, meant to make sure that people have a basic fundamental set of benefits. And that was proving to be very expensive because the money was not going to the right people because of all the uh, you know, lacuna in the system. So that's what led to the idea of having an ID for everyone. And importantly, it had to be a unique ID, which meant that you could have only one ID. And uh, so in that sense, it's a very egalitarian system. Mm. So whether a billionaire or his driver, you both get only one ID. So, uh, for some of us, um, it's difficult to imagine why is this such an ambitious thing and a complicated thing to give IDs to a billion people. So, talk to us as to what are the dimensions, what does it really mean to be able to set this up? Well, first of all, uh, there are two sets of challenges, the technological challenges and the, the political challenges. The technology challenges was how do you establish uniqueness in a billion people? And nobody had solved that problem really. And uh, so we said, and these are people who didn't have any documents. 
So we decided the. And they're already living. It's not yeah, that you yeah. start with the yeah. new birth. It's not about <laughs> prospective births. It's about all these. Everybody was alive, right? So we said the only way to establish uniqueness is through biometrics. That the sufficient. By the time we knew that there was enough biometric uh, data, would establish a human being's uniqueness. And we came up with the set of ten fingerprints, the iris of both eyes, and a photograph. And the digital sort of signature that came out of that was unique. So then we had to make sure that when somebody enrolled, they were not enrolling a second time. So everyone who enrolled had to be compared against all the people already enrolled to see whether it was a duplicate or not. So to give you a sense of the scale of the problem, if we had 500 million people in a database and 1 million new people enrolled, we had to do 500 trillion matches every day to establish uniqueness. So I, I just want to repeat the number for everybody. 500 million in the database, 1 million new people, 500 trillion matches. 500 trillion matches a day. So how we built a massively parallel processing system. How did you keep the system up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, by the way, it's a, it's a multi-data center, you know, always on, real time, you know, can switch either one. It's pretty sophisticated. And. Um, how, uh, you were talking about uh, how you created these 10 fingerprints and the two iris and the photograph yeah. into a digital stream. Yeah. So what did it take to do that? And then when you launched, talk to us a little bit about the enrollment process. Which yeah, you were see, we, 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 at that time, because the telecom network wasn't there, we, we couldn't do an online enrollment. So enrollment was essentially a batch process. So enrollment agents had a, a desktop with a... Uh, fingerprint scanning machine, a, 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 a iris camera, a regular camera, and, and you know people entering details about you. And the details are very simple. Name, address, date of birth, sex, email ID, phone number, and uh, date of birth. So it was a very simple uh, thing. And it would take about 15 minutes per person. And at peak, we were doing one and a half million enrollments a day with 35,000 <laughs> enrollment stations. 35,000 enrollment stations? Across the country. Across the country. All run by uh, enrolling agencies who have paid not to invest in the CapEx, but paid per successful Aadhaar generated. So it was an outcome-based, purely outcome-based, uh, OPEX-based system. The whole thing costs about a dollar per person, so about a billion dollars, billion and a half dollars. So one dollar a person to enroll one person. Yeah. 15 minute process, creating a digital stream. One and a half million a day. One and a half million a 600 day. million in four years, a billion in eight years. Billion in eight years. And what is the, how many? Uh, no, actually a billion we reach in 6.5 years. 6.5. And, and this is in a country where not everybody is educated. Oh, yeah. yeah. And multiple languages and, and all the complexities. And uh, it had to be done using 36 state governments. So uh, lots of languages. And very importantly, we designed it to be convenient for the resident. So anytime, anywhere enrollment. So you could be a person from the state of Bihar working in a, a suburb of Delhi, like Gurgaon, and you could go on a Saturday at 6 o'clock and enroll and go home. So, so you're a resident of Mississippi, you happen to be working in Manhattan, you should be able to go to the yeah. enrollment center in Brooklyn because Correct. that's where you are living. Any time of the day. Any time of the Anytime, day. Anytime, anywhere. 24-7. <laughs> so what does this do 
to the Indian economy and to the Indian society having built this? How does it propel that? Huge. Uh, first, uh, it is the basis for a direct benefit transfer. And, uh, you know, maybe 200 million or more people today get electronic, I mean, digital money transferred into the bank accounts. So we have built the world's largest cash transfer system. So the way it works is that, let's say the, some guy is getting a pension, the number is one, two, three, and he gets a thousand rupees pension. All that the government agency has to do is say, send 1,000 rupees to Aadha number 123. That's all. That's all. That, that's so all the middlemen have been yeah, taken. So that out. instruction goes to a system which has a, say that Aadha number 123 is in this bank. So SB, State Bank of India. So then the payment instruction of 1,000 rupees go to State, State Bank of India with that number. And in that bank, that number points to his bank account and credit happens, all that in 24 hours. So it's all real-time, straight through processing, nobody touches the money, it's all, it's all through. So that has saved the government billions of dollars of uh, loss, I mean, no fraud, and it's made people very happy because people are actually seeing money come into their bank accounts. So that's one thing. Second is aided financial inclusion because this system has an electronic KYC to open a bank account in real-time. So 330 million bank accounts have been opened in the last five years using so this. So 330 million? Bank, bank accounts opened using this as KYC. Not all of them, but many of them using this as the KYC. KYC. As part of the Jandhan program of the government. So financial inclusion. Uh, income taxes, it's linked to the tax ID and so on. Uh, mobile connections. When Mr. Amani launched his Reliance Geo uh, network, for the first few months he gave free mobile connections. So Mr. Ambani is the richest man in India. He's uh, now st started a mobile uh, band, uh, broadband company. Yeah, called Reliance Geo. Hmm. And he had only a limited window when he could give connections. So using Aadhaar KYC, he enrolled 100 million customers in six months. Was this, uh, did this spur different kinds of technologies and innovation, just like in the US we talk about the Manhattan Project or putting a man Absolutely. on the moon. It yeah. creates a whole yeah. ecosystem of new technologies and- Absolutely. Yeah, uh, talk so, to us so about So I think that. what we are seeing in India is actually now uh, enormous uh, leapfrogging using technology. We had one example is Aadhaar itself. Uh, then Aadhaar also gave authentication at scale, one, about one, one, more than one billion authentications a month using iris, fingerprint face, all that stuff. A uh, lot of AI use. In fact, today the authentication is all AI based in Aadhaar mm. to improve, make sure that it's a live person and all kinds of things are done using AI. So it gave people a chance to use the new technologies. Then the new payment system, which is there called Unified Payment Interface or UPI, is a very advanced payment system. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so this was built by NPCI, which is the National Payment Corporation of India. And it was really designed to be uh, any bank account, any bank account, real-time transfer from any mobile phone to any other mobile phone. You can push the money, you can pull the money, and in all kinds of neat features. And this was built uh, prior to demonetization. And in October of uh, the year of demonetization, it was doing about... Uh, uh, 100,000 transactions of 2016, and now it does 800 million transactions a month. 800 million transactions yeah, a yeah, month. Yeah, at about uh, $25 billion a month of transactions. Talk a little bit about you used in the payment system uh, when we were talking earlier, carded and non-carded and how you are, the mobile is becoming yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, so I think when we think about the world's payment systems, I think we have 
carded markets where there are lots of cards, everybody has a card, four cards in his wallet and so on. And obviously US, North America, Europe are all carded markets. And those markets have huge card operations. In Africa where feature phones were very popular, the mobile companies led the way. So Africa has been the capital of what's called mobile money. And the, the poster child of that is M-Pesa, which is done by Safaricom, which is a subsidiary of Vodafone in Kenya, where it's already some 30% of GDP is just from that product. But that's been very Africa-centric. China has done it through uh, Alipay and WeChat. So today Alipay and WeChat do 90% of their digital transactions in China. So it's not the banks, but newcomers like Alipay and WeChat. WeChat came to it from messaging. Alipay came to it from e-commerce. India has built UPI, which is a, sort of a multi-party payment system. So it's run by NPCI, which is a non-profit company owned by the banks. But the banks have access to the system. The banks can partner other distribution partners. Mm -hmm. For example, Google Pay, Amazon Pay, Phone Pay, which is part of Walmart, uh, Paytm, which is a local, local, local company, all use uh, this payment rail. And that's how it's gone to 800 million transactions, and I think it'll reach a few billion in a few months. And this is uh, phone to phone, bank to bank, yeah, yeah. bank to phone. All real time. All real time, so. Uh, and it's free below a certain price, below a certain transaction value. So I tell my bank, transfer money to my. You don't tell your bank, You tell, on your phone you just tap. Huh. I want to send you, a, you have something called a virtual, uh, you, uh, virtual payment ID. Yeah. So say harit at gs.com, so I just say send, Okay, I'll just send him a dollar. Per <laughs> send one dollar to harith at gs.com, hmm. and in real time, it goes in It goes in there. As you look the next five, ten years out, the political and economic situation for India, what are you bullish about? What are you concerned about? No, I think no matter what is the election result, I think the challenges facing India remain the same. I think uh, India is the only young country in an aging world which is an opportunity because clearly the world needs people and so on. But historical models of growth uh, in, in China, Korea, Japan, were manufacturing-led and export-led. Now in an era where globalization itself is being challenged by both by forces everywhere, I don't know whether you can do a globalization-led growth model. And with manufacturing increasingly becoming automated with robotics and 3D manufacturing and so on, I don't know whether the old model of creating millions of jobs for people, making shoes and then cars and electronics, yeah. that model is valid anymore. So I think India will have to select a model of growth which is more domestically focused and more services oriented. So I think jobs is going to be a big challenge. Uh, you know, young people, but education standards are not the best. And so how do you create jobs for them? How do we move people from the farms into service and industrial jobs. So I think these issues are all very much on the plate. Uh, and I think that is true for any government which... which Correct, because uh, you know I uh, play a small role with the American India Foundation. I believe there are a million new jobs that need to be yeah. created. 10 million a year, yeah. And on the other hand, there are millions of jobs which can't be filled because of skilling issues. Yeah, I mean, there, there obviously there's that issue, skilling. But also it's location, yeah. the jobs are in the cities, the people maybe in the villages. Uh, and many of the jo new jobs today are all gig economy jobs, you know. Yes. And uh, that, not everybody wants to do a gig economy job because the biggest job creator may be, you know, Uber drivers or, you know, Swiggy, which is our mm -hmm. DoorDash equivalent, uh, doing uh, deliveries. So there is a job 
challenge. And I think that is one of the big issues uh, facing any new government. But what is the investment thesis for companies looking to uh, either participate in the domestic market or use India as a hub for their regional or global uh, supply chain? No, I, I think at the end of the day, it's still either the first or the second fastest growing economy in the world, anywhere from 5 to 8%. Uh, it's a $2 trillion economy, which will grow to $5, $6 trillion in the next 10, 12 years. Uh, it's going to have a massive increase in people in the consuming class. So purchasing power is going to go up. So many, many firms that are providing yeah. different kinds of consumer products are going to see growth. Uh, it's a, a country where the debt-to-GDP ratio is very low because people don't have access to credit. So there's a huge credit opportunity uh, of, of you know, lending to both small businesses yeah. as well as consumers. So they, you know, I, I think the consumer-led thing is going to be a big play. Uh, Government-led or infrastructure-led is a different ball game because that's subject to so many other constraints. But uh, and you know, the, it's going to the market cap, market capitalization creation out of this is going to run into billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. You've had a very very successful career, and it's still halfway through uh, the journey. What is your advice for people uh, for building their careers, both professionally and personally? I think it's to be curious all the time, to be willing to learn, willing to engage, uh, and wanting to add value. You know, I come up, get up every morning saying I must add some value. Like today, I'm fully adding value here. So I think that's important, and uh, I think I think being open to new things, open to learning new things that keeps you fresh and uh, alive. That's the way that, I think. That's remarkable. So curiosity, add value, and remain open. Yeah. With that, Nandan, thank you very, very much. Thank We've you. really enjoyed Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast was recorded on June 3rd. 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.